Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum. For today's episode, we're going to be bringing you highlights from a briefing that we did on the upcoming Knesset elections with Dr. Dalia Shenlin. Dalia is a political analyst and a public opinion expert in Israel. She has advised five Knesset campaigns on top of electoral and civil society campaigns in 15 different countries, with a focus on post-communist societies and transitional democracies. Dalia is a regular writer at 972 Magazine and a policy fellow at Mitvim, the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies. She also co-hosts the Tel Aviv Review podcast on TLV1 Radio. So with this uh, wealth of expertise and experience, Dahlia certainly has some valuable insights to provide us in how uh, to understand the upcoming Knesset race, the second that's going to take place in Israel in the space of six months. So one of the things that Dahlia talked about was what Israelis are looking for in a prime minister. The last election was very much a contest of personalities, not one of substantive policy issues. It was really a referendum on what people thought of Benjamin Netanyahu, whether they liked him or didn't like him. So the question of leadership, as opposed to these uh, hard policy issues, is something that will probably figure very centrally into this campaign as well. So here's Dahlia on leadership and what it means for Israeli voters. Uh, when I say leadership, I mean, what does leadership mean? You know, in this day and age, we see it. People don't even necessarily like what the leaders are saying, but they appreciate when leaders are bold, even provocative. But more significantly, it's the authenticity and the willingness to, to not, you know, to not be afraid to say what you really believe in, even when it's odious, you know, like, Trump. I mean, we have to understand that this is part of it. It's like people love the honesty. And when you have someone like Abi Gabai uh, kind of mimicking, aping, being somehow traditional right wing coming from labor, it just looks cowardly. And people see right through it now. We're, we're in a post campaign era. If we talk about campaigns in terms of what they were in the 90s um, or 2000s. And our, our leaders have not caught up with that. Certainly not in the opposition. And speaking of leadership in the opposition, Dahlia also touched on the issue of Kahol Lavan, the blue and white party led by Benny Gantz, Yair Lapid, Moshe Yalon, and Gabi Ashkenazi, who were Netanyahu's main challengers in the last election, who are poised to challenge him again in September. And the question of whether or not Kahol Lavan presents a real substantive alternative to Prime Minister Netanyahu and his Likud party. You know, I'm not sure uh, under in what world, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want to be cynical. I'm not exactly sure, you know, it's so clear that blue and white is an opposition. I mean, they, were, they, they, they acted as the opposition only in the sense that they campaigned on replacing Netanyahu. But if you look at who their people are and if you look at their policies, I dare you to find the difference between them and Likud. I mean, if you read their platform, because they did release a platform, their plan for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict looks to the letter, like what is actually happening on the ground now, okay? Um, With one small exception, well, two small exceptions that they won't talk about actual annexation, um, which is something Bibi himself didn't do until recently. And with one moderate exception that they kind of talk about, you know, strengthening the blocks and by omission, you know, de-emphasize the outlying settlements. But that's a very, that's very much a nuance when you look at what Israel is truly doing on the ground today. It's basically exactly that. Again, their people hail from the Netanyahu governments. 
So they, you know, they're, they're tired of this in Yahoo, but that doesn't mean they would do anything differently. They were only in opposition in political terms, not in terms of policy. And so when you ask why, or, or you express disappointment about them not being willing to go into a government with the Arab parties, they couldn't even share a stage with an Arab party leader at the demonstration two weeks ago on Saturday night. You know, they, uh, the, the t t three of the top figures in the party uh, wanted to insist that Ayman Uzeh, the head of Hadash uh, Ta'al, not give a speech. And when Benny Gantz said, no, I'm overriding this, and he apparently personally, call personally called Ayman Uzeh and, you know, told him to come and give the speech, two of the most prominent people in the party turned around and refused to go to the demonstration. They boycotted. So I would say we have a long way to go either before uh, the current leader of the opposition as a party accepts the Arab citizens in any way, shape or form, let alone in a government. Um, and that I would even question to what extent we can expect them to behave like an opposition or like an alternative if they were to actually leave the country. Sorry to um, sound so critical of them, but I mean, I've read their platform, I've seen their people, I've seen their behavior since the election, and I find it hard to reach that conclusion. There's not much going on in blue and white to convince me that they would do anything truly different uh, from Netanyahu, with the one exception that I think they would probably be more committed to preserving liberal democratic institutions in Israeli society because they don't have any need to undermine them to protect anybody. Looking to September's elections, one question that's unavoidable is the fate of Israel's predominantly Arab political parties. In the last round of voting in April, there was a major drop-off in the turnout rate among the Israeli Arab public. That turnout was at only about 50%. And there were questions of voter suppression, the issue of the placement of cameras in predominantly Arab polling stations by Likud contractors. And when it came to dissolving this Knesset, the Arab parties actually voted with the government to dissolve the Knesset and move to new elections in September. And they were clearly looking for a do-over, an opportunity to undo some of the uh, negative ramifications of the last election. So Dahlia touched on some of the options and the ways things could go for the Arab parties, possibilities of mergers among themselves, as well as partnerships with the Jewish parties. And there's also the question of why things turned out so poorly for the Arab political parties in the April 2019 elections. And Dahlia shows us that it goes back further than just a few months ago. We, we can expect changes at the level of the political system. You know, again, the parties might try to revive the joint list. They might consider merging with merits. But I think the question is really like, what would be their, you know, how, can, how would they think? You know, they have to think differently. And I think that, um, listen, the, the real source of the low turnout, first of all, let me just also clarify that the low turnout among the Palestinian citizens, Arab citizens of Israel, 49%, uh, was not the lowest it's ever been. Uh, I know this is a popular uh, conception, misconception, uh, but in 2001, when Israel held special elections just for prime minister, because our electoral system was different then, uh, they boycotted those elections. And only 18% of them won eight turned out to vote. Uh, I think that's a critical, um, a critical observation to remember because it really legitimized the idea of not voting. And it also, you know, that era was a really a breaking point um, similar to, you know, Land Day or, uh, you know, historic injury done to the, the Palestinian citizens, uh, Arab citizens of Israel. And they never really recovered from that. In other words, their voter turnout went back up, but never back up to the rates it used to be, never back up to where the Jewish turnout rate is. And it often hovered close to the halfway mark. So this is, you know, technically a little bit lower, 
than previous Knesset elections, but not by very much. The last election in 2015, before April, uh, was the outlier because turnout went higher um, because of the excitement over the joint list. And I think that, you know, the real disappointment, it's, it's, be it's become popular to say that they were disappointed over their leaders uh, in the joint list. I think that that's really only a proxy. I think the real disappointment is the nation state law. I think we underestimate to what extent the nation, the passage of the nation state law was a devastating watershed moment for Arab citizens of Israel, not unlike the you know, terrible injury of you know, the killing of uh, 13 Arab Palestinian protesters in, 2000, um, in October 2000. And I think that you know, we don't realize to what extent they felt that that was you know, not, not the culmination of a bad decade, but the beginning of a severe decline in their safe, you know, security and rights in Israel. And I think that the real, you know, when we say they were disappointed in their leadership, to my mind, in a little, in a way, that's like buying into the narrative of the right. Okay, the right has been saying for years, the Arab, the Arab voters dislike their own politicians because they focus too much on the Palestinian national issue and not enough on daily life issues. And I think this whole idea that they were disappointed in their leadership is an extension of that. The reason they were disappointed in their leadership is because their leadership was powerless to stop the nation state law. And if they were, you know, if, which is why I think that we have to look at it in a deeper way. And I think that there, you know, many, for many Palestinian citizens uh, who are, you know, who are voters, the conclusion might be that we will never have the ability to, to either represent ourselves or protect ourselves in this country or fulfill our full potential and, and maintain our rights unless we partner with the people who really hold power, which are Jews. And so that's why I think we saw more, you know, a higher vote for merits than we've seen in the past. Um, and that's why I think we should look at this as you know, a mutual understanding among certain, among left-wing Jewish and some Arab citizen voters that you know, the Jewish-Arab partnership is the most important thing right now. Now we definitely hear more of this in the Jewish left-wing circles than in the past. We see it to some extent from the Arab voters. The question is, will political leaders have the vision to actually try to represent, you know, the forward-thinking trends and be on the you know on the avant-garde, be the pioneers in this, the visionaries, or will they just be cowards, you know, clinging to old ideas about, you know, not legitimizing, blah blah blah. Um, what we see you know, in the survey that I conducted for uh, for for Local Call magazine, which was also translated into English uh, in 972 magazine. We found that over 80%, 87% of the Arab respondents, and we did an oversample, we had a big sample of Arab respondents, want an Arab party to join the governing coalition. You know, we're not in the 1960s where it was all about anti, you know, delegitimization. Yeah, we have anti-normalization, but it's not the same thing. Um, and I can, you know, needless to say, there were much fewer Jews who uh, supported that idea. Of course, it's impossible to talk about Israeli politics and elections without talking about Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister. He has had an uninterrupted shot in office for the past 10 years, but now there are indictments hanging over his head in three corruption cases. There was also his failure after the April elections to secure a coalition based on personal immunity for himself, which is how we're back at elections again. So now there's a real question about how loyal Israelis are to Benjamin Netanyahu whether people vote for his Likud party because they like the prime minister, or whether Netanyahu is returned to office time and again because people like his Likud party. Here's Dahlia addressing that question. This is always, uh, this is always kind of one of those um, 
you know, very key questions that there's not, it's, there's not a very easy answer to it. I have tried to poll on this in the past. Um, I asked people about two years ago, <clears throat> if Netanyahu has to step down uh, because of the corruption investigations and Likud runs alone, would that make you more or less likely to vote for Likud? And when you did the calculation of those who said more likely and those who said less likely, uh, he, Likud lost a few points in the net, you know, calculation. Um, a few percentage points. And so it's very hard call. I would not go so far as to say Netanyahu is the main reason why people vote Likud because Likud has had a very strong traditional base of support for, you know, for years long before uh, Netanyahu, of course, starting from the Begin years. I mean, there's a historic factor here. There's the tr family tradition, uh, the sense of, you know, we are part of this tribe. This is our family in a bigger sense. And Likud is one of the only parties that still has that. Labor had it, but they lost it. Meretz has sort of had it, except that Meretz isn't, just isn't as old. Meretz was only really established as a coalition of parties in the early 90s. Um, I think that they started, you know, different parties within started forming in the late 80s, but they only came together maybe 25 years ago. And so it just doesn't go, it's just not as historic. And all the other parties, when you think about it, other than the ultra-Orthodox, are pretty new. So Likud has, uh, you know, very clear kind of base. The question is, you know, what portion of the current 35 seats are Likud traditional voters, tribal voters, you might say, and what portion of them are Netanyahu groupies? And are they not, you know, to what extent do they overlap? I mean, some of the people who are core Likud supporters may also be Netanyahu groupies. Um, and for that reason, I think it's a hard question to answer. I don't think Likud will collapse. It's not gonna, you know, we're not gonna see an Abigabai. We're not gonna see them go from 35 seats to only a quarter of that. If anybody can divide 35 into four, you know, uh, we're not gonna see them get 10 seats, eight seats. Um, and they will, I think they will retain more of their power. Again, based on partly my, my understanding of the electorate, partly based on the survey research that I did, I imagine they will see some drop off with, with, with uh, Netanyahu gone but I don't expect it to be huge. If I had to place bets right now, you know, don't hold me to this, but I would guess like five, you know, they could lose five or six seats without Netanyahu. Beyond Netanyahu and his Likud party, there are other factions on the Israeli right with their own agendas. For some, it's the opportunity to have a do-over with these next elections in September. Take, for example, Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked. They were widely viewed as rising stars on the Israeli right, each with their own personal ambitions, angling to be leaders of the right bloc as a whole and potentially prime ministers of Israel. But they just barely missed the electoral threshold in the April election, and their new right party didn't make it into the Knesset. Now they have another shot at things. Here's what Dahlia had to say about that. Uh, the first thing I think I tweeted after elections were called um, within about, I don't know, half an hour was Naftali Bennett is going to claw his way back into the political system. Uh, the guy's a political animal. I think he was devastated by the loss. Uh, I think he has been building his, you know, visions of himself as possibly, you know, prime minister one day, maybe not so far off. I think he has, you know, been kind of slowly, um, building in terms of, you know, I say slowly building, I mean, his party didn't take off the way Yair Lapid's did, right? Yair Lapid got 19 seats when Bennett just had, you know, um, uh, I can't remember how many he got in 2013, but in 20, uh, 2015, he went, he went down to eight seats. I think he maybe had 10 and he was down to eight or something. And now, uh, now he got erased altogether. And so, you know, I think he sees himself as in it for the long haul. 
I have no doubt that he will spend the next couple of weeks going through every scenario uh, to try to decide which is the best for him, purely on a strategic level, and he will do whichever one he thinks will get him votes. Now, if he goes, I think you know, the, the options that we can lay out are that he will continue with a new right party, which so far he seems to be talking about. I believe in this partnership between seculars and you know, religious, and um, it seems like he so far is committed to that. It doesn't mean very much. Politicians break their promises you know, within, usually within about half an hour of saying them uh, in, in an Israeli election cycle. Um, he might rejoin uh, the Jewish Home Party. Not impossible. Um, I imagine we're going to see quite some, re quite some refiguring of the parties on the right. I think a lot of people on the right were disappointed in the results of the last elections because those votes were wasted. Okay, that was, I think, you know, if the right was, had any sort of real downfall, it was that they really liked Bennett and they really liked Shaked. I mean, in my polling over the course of the last, you know, year or two, Shaked is uh, one of the most popular politicians in the country. And believe me, it's not from the center and the left. It's the right who, you know, puts her in a very high position. And he's pretty, he's not far behind. So I think they're all going to try to capitalize on that. There's no question that Ayelet Shaked gave her a little going away spiel from the uh, justice ministry the other day, basically saying, just, you know, keep my seat warm. I'm going to come back. And so, you know, it's not clear where they're going to, there was, we all, we all thought she was going to join the Likud briefly until she was summarily fired from the justice ministry recently. But both of them will find their way back. I have very little doubt about it. Across the Israeli political spectrum, the Trump administration has been a very strongly felt presence. Now, after months of rumors, delays, and false starts, their so-called deal of the century for Israeli-Palestinian conflict was poised to be released with an economic workshop in Bahrain at the end of the month. Of course, the United States has not been in touch with the PLO for some time, and the plans and policies of this American administration always seem to factor in Israeli political considerations, particularly the needs of Prime Minister Netanyahu. So with another election, there are real questions about whether this Bahrain conference will go forward, whether the plan itself has any future at all, because the United States, under President Trump, is very keen to avoid doing anything that could put Netanyahu in any kind of controversy or any sort of uncomfortable political situation relative to his rivals, both on the left and on the right. So here's Dahlia's take on that. The Trump plan, the only consistent thing we know about the Trump plan is that it's consistently postponed. Um, and the economic component, you know, we all have mixed feelings about it. Netanyahu, on the one hand, could embrace it and say, I've always believed in economic peace, the extension of that being that economic advancement is a replacement for a political solution. Um, or he could reject it entirely and say, you know, the Palestinians are rejectionists. Um, I, you know, just to, just to prove he's tough, just to say I won't give in to any sort of plan. I mean, I read, I read an interesting op-ed in, um, in the far-right uh, press saying, no, maybe it was in Israel today. It was somebody defending Netanyahu saying, you know, the right-wing parties will never be satisfied because the Trump plan is the best deal that Israel's ever going to get from an American president, and it's still too left-wing for the far right. These are, this was somebody who was defending Netanyahu. Um, so he might be rejectionist about it just to prove to the further right that he's going to stand tough against the Trump plan. But again, the economic piece of it is not that threatening. It goes along with what Netanyahu has been saying. So... I don't see it as a major factor deciding the elections either way, whether it happens or whether it's postponed, whether it happens and Netanyahu embraces or rejects it. 
We know what the Palestinians are going to do. I just don't see it making a major difference. It doesn't put in a, it doesn't put Israel in a defensive position either way. And it doesn't look bad or good. The only thing that looks good that continues to cast a spell over Israelis, even those who don't support Netanyahu, but especially those who do, I should say, especially those who still support Netanyahu, is what they consider unrivaled acumen in dealing with foreign affairs. And they give him unlimited credit for you know, being able to handle Trump. Um, they probably don't even like Trump, except for that they think he's great for Israel. I mean, when I say probably, I know the numbers. Trump is very popular among Israeli Jews. Um, but it's not because of what they see him doing in the US, it's because that they, see, you know, they see him as good for Israel. And they give Netanyahu huge credit for that. And they, they give him credit in general for his foreign policy, which many of us, you know, on the more liberal side of the map, don't think is a good thing. Outside of any specific American or Israeli policy and the ebb and flow of debate on the left and right, there are also broader trends that are going to shape this election. For example, how different age brackets vote in Israel. Here's Dahlia again. Um, this is something I talk about a lot because it's a very consistent finding for about the last 10, 11 years, which is that young people in Israel, specifically young Jews, are more uh, self-identify self more as right-wing relative to the oldest age demographic, which is 55 and up. When I say young, I mean 20, uh, sorry, 18 to 34. Um, and that was a new trend in the late 2000s. It was not the case in previous years. We saw a major rise in the portion of young people who consider themselves right-wing, bringing them to a higher level of right-wing self-identification than other Israelis. Since the late 2000s, that 18 to 34 year old group has bled into the 34 to 55 year old group. And they now also are more right wing than the older group and the 55 and up increasingly look like the outliers. Now, I don't want to suggest that 55 and up are, you know, merits voters, but they are more left leaning, they have a higher portion of self identified left wingers than everybody else. And they are more they take more moderate positions on most you know, social issues that are related to ideology in Israel. Um, there are two major reasons that I can boil down about why young people are more right-wing. One is demographic, you know, more of them are religious than the general population. And religion, you know, the, the iron law of Israeli polling, which has been the case throughout Israeli history of polling, and polling goes back to the late 40s, um, is that the more religious you are, the more right-wing you are. And by the same logic, the more religious people are present in any given age cohort, the more, the more right-wing that age cohort will be. So that's part of the reason. It's not the only reason though. Uh, and the other, the other main reason I think is that these people grew up at a time when there was no personal experience or memory of a peace process. They, you know, many of them went through their formative years um, during the, or remembering fresh in the collective memory of the second intifada and have, you know, a, the education system, they're barely even taught that there is an occupation. Many of them don't really understand you know, what, what the Palestinian territories are. As far as they're concerned, Israel is just Israel. They don't think about you know, the green line. The green line practically doesn't exist for them. I'll tell you a brief anecdote and then we can you know, take maybe whatever final wrap up. I had to go to Hebron for something uh, last year. And on my way back, I got to the checkpoint at Talkumia, which is of course well inside the West Bank, you know, well past the green line if you're coming from Israel. And the person guarding it was a woman, a uh, private security guard. And she said, where were you? And I said, well, I was at the tomb of the patriarchs because, you know, that's, Jews are allowed to be there. So I thought that wouldn't raise her, um, her suspicion. But she said, 
oh, did you go into the territories? Which to my mind was surreal because we were in the territories having that conversation. But to her mind, the only thing left of the occupied territories is the part of Hebron that's controlled by Palestinians for day-to-day -day life. That's it. All the rest, as far as she was concerned, it's just Israel. So I would leave you with that thought that, you know, young people, and she was young, I mean, young people don't even really have it in their consciousness that Israel stops somewhere. I mean, I suppose they think it stops, you know, at the river, but I don't think they think about it very often. Given these long-standing trends, some may question whether there's reason to believe that the outcome of the election in September should be any different from the outcome of the election in April. Here's what Dahlia had to say. The main reason is because the parties might look different. There is no reason to expect the vote. Well, I shouldn't say that entirely. I think that there, you know, the main reason is if the parties look different. You know, if, if the structure of what's being offered is different, you can't get the same result. But there's no reason to think the blocks would change. Okay, if the parties are clearly identified in the voters' minds as right, left, or center, there's no reason to think those blocks will change. The one thing that I think we can expect is, or not just one thing, let's say a few things. I think right-wing voters will be more likely to choose established parties or, big, or parties that are polling high, because as it gets closer, the polls are more reliable. And if they see that party, you know, some parties are more likely to cross the threshold than others, I think we will get fewer people voting for Fagelin. Uh, the new right, I don't know, but I think that you know, they feel burned. You know, people feel disappointed that their votes were wasted on the right. Um, and they will probably try to make sure that doesn't happen again. I imagine we'll see even more pressure on the right for the different factions to the right of Netanyahu and to the religious right of Netanyahu, but the non-Haredi right to unite. I mean, when you think about it, I always had this um, conspiratorial attitude that the entire creation of the united right was Netanyahu's very clever way of actually splitting the national religious vote. They're only 12% of the population, of the Jewish population, like maybe 10 or 11% of the total population. If you split them into two, because Bennett had already peeled off from the Jewish home, but then you add these extra parties, you know, in a coalition so that they're stronger and people have a real alternative, then you just take 10% and make it five each. And somebody, you know, roughly, and somebody's bound to not cross the threshold. So I, you know, I'm not sure if I'm right about that, but it was always my pet theory. I think that their right is going to be more um, clever about not splitting up into different parties. Um, and so that's one thing that could be different. It won't change the size of the block. Um, and on the center and the left, I mean, I don't, it's hard for me to expect to change. You know, again, it will all depend on how the parties break down amongst themselves, but I don't see any major reason why the size of the block would change unless all the parties on the right um, do something that alienates a portion of the right-wing voters. And I think it would only really have to do with the democracy issues, the immunity and the, secu you know, the Supreme Court override law, and maybe the religion and state stuff, because that is one of the issues that up until now has been a major dividing line, uh, even within the right, right? Lieberman is counting on the secular right. Um, but if Lieberman does well, that doesn't change the size of the block uh, if you consider them all on the right. I suppose you know, the other surprises could come after the election, if some party defects and says, I'm gonna go into a coalition, like let's say we have a similar result, blue and white stays the same, they win you know, similar number of votes to Likud, but now Lieberman says, you know what, I'm not gonna do this farce again, I'm gonna go in with blue and white, and you know, if by some you know, magic, <laughs> other centrist parties do well enough, I suppose that could be a surprise, but it seems very, it's very, it's too, 
you know, speculative in terms of who the parties are to even imagine what the numbers might be that would allow that. Finally, when talking about the election, there is one more elephant in the room, and that's the issue of polling. We all like to read polls. We all talk about them. But how useful are they really? In the April Israeli election, there were some major developments, such as the failure of Zehut and the new right party to cross the electoral threshold that didn't seem to be projected in the polling. Dahlia, as an expert on public opinion and surveys, had some valuable words of advice and caution for reading polls and forecasts of how September's election is going to turn out. What I have to say about polls right now is be careful. Be very, very careful. (laughs) I mean, for one thing, you shouldn't read polls at all when it comes to counting mandates. The horse race polls at this moment are you know, not significant at all for the main reason that we don't know who the parties are going to be. We don't know who's actually running. And so whatever we see now, it doesn't, doesn't matter, right? If you, if the party configurations completely change by 60 days before the election, when they have to declare uh, who, you know, who they are. So that's one reason. The other reason is that people are very confused. I mean, I, you know, that's one word coming out of everybody that I speak to um, in terms of, you know, how do you feel? What do you think? And I mean, left and right. I hear a lot of people saying, I'm just confused. I don't understand how we got here. So I would say, don't read the, the horse race polls right now at all. Um, they're good for the moment. I mean, you can start reading them now for one reason. I allow you to start reading polls now for one reason, and that's so that you can follow trends. Again, even that's dangerous because the parties will probably change. But, you know, assuming there, if there are any parties that don't change, and I'm not sure who they would be. Even Likud is different now because they absorbed Kathleen's party, Kulanu. So, uh, but if you know, you, if, they, if, if you look at polls that are starting to predict now and you, and you can, you know, keep the benchmarks in your mind, like Likud and Kahlon together uh, are currently getting about 36 seats. So, you know, you can watch that over the next number of weeks to see whether they go up or down. That's legitimate. And I would say, keep those trends in mind. What happened in the last election is that the trends were, uh, the trends were not far off. In other words, uh, those parties that you mentioned were all very close to uh, within, a, within one seat um, of where they were polling towards the very end. But that's, of course, very close to the margin of error, of any, within the margin of error of any real poll. So my advice is to look at trends, look at averages, and look at ranges. Don't assume that a poll can tell you whether Likud is going to get 35 seats, but look at the range, whether, it's going to, you know, whether in general it's getting between 32 and 37 seats. It's true that the polls were off um, even on that for both blue and white and Likud, but the general breakdown was correct. They were running very close, almost neck and neck for most of the election. Um, and so what happened, and they were both the front runners. That, of course, was correct. Uh, what happened is that I think people who were undecided broke evenly for both of those parties rather than voting for a surprise new party, which sometimes happens. And you can't know that until we know who the final party is offering, which is, but that's also, that, that was what made it uh, a, a plausible idea that people might vote for Fagelin. Okay, it turned out to be wrong. You know, sometimes the polls just can't pick up on the voting. You know, the voters, it turns out, are human. Um, and, you know, so, you know, social science can't always capture their decisions. But I would recommend one other thing. Look very closely at the other questions being asked in the polls. Look very closely at the questions about Netanyahu's support or favorability. And I can tell you that no matter what you ask about Netanyahu, do you want to see him continue being prime minister? Do you think that he's, uh, that his... Um, perspective on the corruption investigations is the right perspective, or do you believe, you know, the, the legal authorities more? Uh, general favorability, no matter what you ask about Netanyahu, 
you get between 39 and 42 or 3% who are on his side. And that hasn't changed in about three or four years, pretty much since 2015. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed now. It's true that the last poll I saw that uh, looked at his favorability, or was it, no, sorry, suitability to be prime minister had him at 39%. So again, I use those, poll, those questions almost interchangeably. You always have this core, but it's like saying Trump goes down to 38% on a bad day. His range is still 38 to 45%, and so is Netanyahu's. It's not the only thing they have in common. But I would look at other questions uh, in polls that ask about issues, where do people see democracy, the Supreme Court, attitudes towards religion and state? Do they support the draft law? Do they support the override clause? I think, and, and of course, if any poll shows you self-identification of left, right, and center, that's still the best predictor for whether people will vote in the left, right, or center blocks. And I can guarantee you that if you add up my numbers that I told you before about the, the breakdown of left, right, center, they look an awful lot like the blocks. Uh, to the point where when I had to make bets with friends a few days before the last elections, guess who came closest to guessing the blocks? Okay, I didn't get it totally right. I thought 66 and, and 54, but pretty close. That's it for today's episode of Israel Policy Pod. We're very grateful to Dr. Dalia Shemlin for joining our briefing on Knesset elections, and I encourage all of our listeners to check out her analysis published through a variety of platforms and always insightful. And also to check out our 120 project, which you may remember from the last time we had Knesset elections way, way back in April. And that is back up and running at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash elections two. That's the number two. And you can find more podcasts like this, videos, analysis from the Israel Policy Forum staff and guest contributors, columns from our policy director, Michael Koplow, and more resources on the upcoming Knesset elections. So thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.